Before we get started this morning, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to learn more from your word, to learn more of your Holy Spirit, and pray that you would open our eyes to all that you would teach us, uh, apply your word to our hearts to transform us into Christ's likeness. Pray that all that we do today would glorify and honor you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, we saw that the Holy Spirit is the primary member of the Trinity responsible for bringing the spiritually dead to life. <clears throat> and through a number of examples and scriptures, we saw that the spiritually dead uh, are just as lifeless and just as incapable of any action or activity as somebody who is physically dead. They can't understand the gospel, can't respond in repentance and faith, can't do anything good. The unregenerate individual contributes nothing to his spiritual regeneration, and he can't even desire to be brought from death to life. He or she is totally dead spiritually and unresponsive to the things of the Spirit. That is, until the Holy Spirit mysteriously brings the dead individual from death into life, which Scripture refers to as being born again. Then once instantly brought to life spiritually, the gift of faith is imparted and the born-again believer trusts in Christ to salvation. And I pointed out that this work of regeneration, coming to faith, is all a combined work of, of God, all the members of the Trinity, uh, and the born-again believer contributes nothing. It is solely a work of God, and primarily work the work of the Holy Spirit. And I also mentioned that once an individual is regenerated by the Spirit and has trusted in Christ to salvation, which the born-again individual will most certainly do, that individual is forever transformed from death into life. God transforms uh, that inner heart, the intellect, the will, the emotions, and that uh, born-again believer will begin to manifest um, a transformed outer life. No longer a bad tree capable of producing only bad fruit, the born-again believer is now able to produce good fruit. But even though the Spirit has regenerated, followed by the gift of repent, repentance and faith, that reborn individual does continue to sin. We continue to sin in the same ways uh, that we sinned before being made alive, before coming to faith. And sometimes a Christian will sin so much and so terribly that it may not look like they were ever truly born again and that they may have lost their salvation, but of course, we cannot lose our salvation. That's not possible. We talked about that last week as well. Now, it may be that someone who has professed faith uh, was never truly born again, and the lack of outward transformation or a lapse back into a life characterized by sin is in fact evidence that regeneration never happened. And the profession of faith, faith was false. Yet, true believers 
those who have been born again by the Spirit, those who have a new heart, will continue to sin until Christ returns or he takes us home. We will continue to sin over the course of our lives, even though we are new creations in Christ. And we all know this from personal experience. And at times, we may experience real discouragement over our constant failures and repeated episodes of sin. We also know from Scripture the reality of ongoing sin in the life of the believer. The Apostle Paul, who is easily one of the most godly men in church history, acknowledged his own ongoing struggle with sin in Romans 7. Now, there is a different view of Romans 7, but I'm going to go with the view that he was a believer struggling with sin. Jesus instructed the disciples who were believers, and he gave them an example, uh, a model for prayer in Luke 11, 2 through 4. And in verse 4, it says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 is also written to believers, and it confirms the fact of ongoing sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the true believer, the individual who has been regenerated, born again, <clears throat> by the work of the Holy Spirit, will continue to sin in this lifetime. So what's the solution to this ongoing sin problem? Well, there's two wrong ideas. The first wrong idea is that we can defeat sin simply by sheer willpower, by discipline, by a resolute determination. We can conquer sin in our own strength and ability. Now, I don't know about you, but that has never worked for me uh, or anybody else that I know of. The other wrong way to deal with this problem of sin is totally opposite approach, uh, which is to do nothing at all. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the expression, let go and let God. And the idea there is that there can be no real victory if we're putting out our own effort. Some who have promoted this idea actually teach that we achieve sinless perfection in the same way that we are saved by grace through faith and not by any work on our part. In the same way, we are sanctified. Usually it happens at a later time after salvation, but it's also an instantaneous work of the Spirit in which sinless perfection is achieved in this lifetime. Um, achieved is probably the wrong word to use because that would imply effort, and this view of sanctification is effortless. I actually worked uh, with a lady in Kenya, who held to this view, and she believed that she no longer sinned. And she was convinced and tried to convince me that I no longer sinned. She clearly did not know me very well. I tried to convince her just the opposite, that I sinned every day. She goes, no, you don't sin. That's just how you are. Yeah, I'm still sinning. I'm a sinner. Anyway, she was a sweet lady. 
But of course, uh, both of these views are wrong. They're unbiblical. Scripture teaches that an individual is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, saved by faith, that the new believer is then united with Christ. They are in Christ, and Christ is in them. I'm going to read a fairly long passage here, Romans 6, 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, in our union with Christ, we are set free from the power of sin, and because of our union with Christ, we are declared justified and righteous as a result of Christ's righteousness being placed on us or imputed to us. We are made holy by virtue of our union with Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That holiness that it refers to, holy nation, um, is referring to our position in Christ, that we are set aside for God and Christ's holiness is placed on us. Scripture also repeatedly refers to believers as saints or holy ones. Acts 9.32, now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Philippians 4.21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. 1 Corinthians 1.2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, which was a church that was sinning quite egregiously, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So, Calling believers saints or holy ones, again, is not a reference to their practical day-to-day sinlessness or experiential holiness as saints. They are set aside, they are dedicated to God, but in their day-to-day life, they still sin. But by virtue of union with Christ, our position in Christ, we are declared holy. At the same time, the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant, and in the New Covenant are commanded to be holy, to be practically pure and morally blameless in their day-to-day conduct, thoughts, and actions. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Peter repeats this command in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And in Matthew 5.48, says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what we see is that the believer is to become experientially what he has been declared to be because of our union with Christ. And it should also be clear that salvation and sanctification are inseparable. If an individual is truly born again, they are positionally sanctified, set apart for God, and declared holy because of their union with Christ. Uh, Then they are commanded to grow in holiness, and they will grow into or become in thought and conduct what they are positionally. After that initial break with sin, due to our union with Christ, and then over the course of time, the Holy Spirit progressively sanctifies, progressively transforms the born-again believer into greater Christ-likeness, into greater holiness. 1 Corinthians 6.11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4.3-8, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and in not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, over the course of the believer's life, the occurrence of sin will decrease, and there will be an increase in holiness. There will be an increase in the ability to resist temptation, to experience day-to-day victory over sin, and to live in greater obedience to Christ to what he commands, and to live in greater righteousness and submission to Christ and to the will of God. And this is the process, what we call progressive sanctification, progressive increase in personal holiness, progressive transformation into Christ-likeness. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Primarily, again, all members are involved in our sanctification, but primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 1 Peter 1.2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The Holy Spirit in, in sanctification also leads the believer, Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He empowers the believer, Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and all of the, that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer is by virtue of his indwelling the believer. John 14, 16 through 17, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that came about post-Pentecost or at Pentecost. Now, I said before that this transformation takes place gradually over time. Uh, no one instantly becomes fully sanctified. No one instantly becomes holy. Everyone progresses at a different rate. No uh, two people are the same. God has a different plan in sanctification for each individual. This work of sanctification, uh, again, is a work of all the members of the Godhead, but primarily work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so all of that kind of sounds like that one wrong idea of let go and let God. doesn't sound like believers have anything to do with sanctification. Sounds like it's all a work of grace, which actually it is all a work of grace, but we'll unpack that a little bit. It's all a work of God. We contribute nothing to our sanctification. We really do let go and let God. We can sit back and relax. We don't have to do anything. Just trust in the work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll become more holy. We'll become more Christ-likeness. If we exert any effort in the pursuit of our holiness, uh, attempt to kill sin and live righteous, moral, pure lives, we will just end up being legalistic Pharisees. That's not biblical, okay? That's not the way it works. Um, wrong way of thinking, okay? So, it is true that apart from union with Christ and the indwelling empowerment and work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no progress in the process of progressive sanctification. There would be no transformation into Christ-likeness. Philippians 2.13 affirms that. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. At the same time, Scripture is full of commands and exhortations and encouragement that requires the believer to take aggressive action in putting off sin and pursuing righteousness. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives does not make our action or our work unnecessary. Sanctification is not like regeneration. In regeneration, we are totally passive. We can't do anything about it. We don't choose to be born, and we contribute nothing to our spiritual rebirth. Just like a physical baby, we're just born. But in sanctification, the believer is both passive and active. And theologians describe the difference uh, as regeneration and salvation being monergistic. That means that only God is working. But sanctification is described as being synergistic. Both God and man are working. 
In sanctification, the Holy Spirit sovereignly works within the believer's heart in the process of transformation, reorienting, convicting, illuminating, empowering, guiding, and directing. In all of that, man is passive. He doesn't control the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't direct the Holy Spirit. The Spirit works in the believer, growing spiritual life, changing desires and affections, conforming the will of the believer to God's will. The believer has no part in that, but at the same time, we are active in working that out, putting it into practice, pursuing obedience, fleeing from sin and temptation, working out this new spiritual life that the Holy Spirit has imparted to us. And we're able to do this not in our own power, it's not by our own will or determination or willpower, okay? It is the result of our union with Christ and the indwelling, enabling power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. But we do and we must work. Spirit sanctifies by working in and through our emotions, our intellect and will, using them causing them to move into action and to work. And we work. So sanctification is both passive and active on our part. It is both the grace of God and our responsibility. We don't act in our own power because we can do nothing apart from Christ and the enablement of the Spirit. But we take action as the Holy Spirit gives us the desire, ability, and power to act. And then we act. And it's not as though the Spirit gets us started moving in the right direction and then we do the rest. That's not, that's not a correct way of thinking either. God the Spirit is working in 100% of everything that we do and we are working 100% in everything that we do. And the very reason that we're able to work in our sanctification is because the Spirit is working in us. Every single good thing that we do, whether that's fleeing from sin and temptation, doing something positive that's been commanded like giving sacrificially, sharing the gospel, being patient with our children, encouraging a, a depressed brother or sister in Christ, or personally finding hope and joy in Christ. We're able to do all of those things because the Spirit enables us. Yet we are to work as hard as we can, enabled by the Spirit in living in obedience to all that Christ commands, in the pursuit of holiness, in growing in Christ-likeness. Ultimate victory over sin and growth and holiness is the result of our union with Christ and the sanctifying work of the Spirit within us, but Scripture repeatedly, constantly commands us, encourages us to fight against sin and Satan, to put off the old and put on the new, to live obedient lives. When Jesus gave his commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he said, teach the disciples you're going to be making to observe or obey all that he commanded. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which 
you made the good confession, the presence of many witnesses. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And I could go on and on and on because Scripture is full of commands, full of exhortations, full of imperatives that tell us to pursue holiness, to be morally perfect and pure as God is morally perfect and pure, to take action in the pursuit of sanctification. So there is a passive side to sanctification in which the Spirit works in the believer, through the believer, and there is an active side in which believers act, take action. And one of the best passages that illustrates that, um, the passive and active nature of um, sanctification is that passage I referred to earlier, quoted the first part of that, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Uh, in that passage, Paul doesn't say, sit back and relax, it's all grace, let the Spirit do all the work, you don't have to do anything. That's not what he says. He forcefully and he clearly says that you have to work. So, uh, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that clearly refers to the believer's active part and responsibility in sanctification. Paul definitely doesn't say, let go and let God. You don't have to work. He'll do it all. He says, put out every effort in your pursuit of holiness. Work at it. But then, after that exhortation to work, Paul immediately follows it up with the passive dimension of sanctification in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. So, yes, work. Work at it with all your might. Work at it with fear and trembling. Give it everything you've got because that's your responsibility. But at the same time, remember, it's God who is working in you to desire to will and to take action. You're not able to do it on your own. And you're not doing it on your own. God is working in you 
the Holy Spirit is working in you. So, now, there's a couple of things uh, in this process of sanctification, a couple of things that we should all be doing in order to see increasing victory over sin and growth in holiness, growth in greater obedience. So first of all, preach the gospel to yourself. And if you're in a small group and um, going through the gospel primer, you're already doing that on a weekly basis. But if you're not doing that, get that small little book, the gospel primer, and read it on your own. Or just remind yourself in your daily reading of what you have as a result of your union with Christ. You're no longer under sin's dominion. You've been freed from the power of sin. You're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and Christ. And greater is he that is in you that is in, than he that is in the world. You have the very power and presence of God working in and through you, and God has promised to complete the work of sanctification in you. He has promised to fully transform you into Christ's likeness. Preach the gospel to yourself. And then, as you're preaching the gospel to yourself, pray. Pray for greater strengthening and empowerment from the Holy Spirit to kill sin and pursue holiness. Pray that he will change your desires and affections. Pray that he will grow your hatred and revulsion for sin and your love and your desire for all that's good and righteous and pure and lovely and holy, pleasing to God. Pray that he'll enable you to find your joy, your satisfaction, and your pleasure in Christ rather than in the lesser things of this world. Pray that the Spirit will not allow you to be content with your progress in sanctification at the same time that He will grow your dependence upon Him in your pursuit of holiness. And in all your prayers, pray in faith. Pray believing that He will answer your prayers. And if you pray those things, you can have the confidence that God will answer your prayers because all of those things are His will for you. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And our sanctification is his will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. You, know, you want to know what the will of God is for you? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And also remember as you pray for the Spirit's enablement and empowerment to grow in Christ-likeness, that the Holy Spirit is also praying for you. And He's praying better than you can pray for yourself. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And another important thing you need to be doing as you take spirit-enabled action to pursue your part in sanctification is to be in the Word. We need to be daily, actively, diligently immersing ourselves in Scripture. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. 
We need to hear it preached and taught. We need to meditate on it, and we need to be doers of it. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God, applying it to our hearts to transform us. We can't expect to grow in holiness. We can't expect to make any progress in sanctification if we are never in the Word, which was given and inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can't know what sin is. We can't know what holiness looks like. We can't know what Christ-likeness is if we don't know Christ. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We've already read this passage, but again, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit, and we behold him as he's revealed in the word. We grow in our knowledge of Christ and His will by being in His Word. And not just occasionally, but as our daily spiritual food. We can only observe and obey all that He commands if we know all that He commands. We can only know all He commands by being thoroughly and constantly saturated in the Word. Jesus taught this in John 17, 17, and 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Peter makes the point in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And that is a reference to the word. And finally... Be diligent as you pray, as you are in the Word, as you preach the gospel to yourself. Be diligent to gather with the body of Christ for corporate worship, fellowship, public exposition of the Word, corporate prayer, and singing praises to God. This is another means by which the Spirit works sanctification. The Holy Spirit works through other believers to comfort us, to encourage us, to correct us, to teach us, to rebuke us when we fall into sin and to pray for us. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, you see the corporate body ministering to one another until we reach full maturity in Christ. In other words, until we reach complete sanctification. And that ministering that we do to one another is all enabled and directed by the Holy Spirit. So, sanctification, primarily a work of the Spirit. It is progressive over the course of our lives. The Holy Spirit works in and through us, transforming us into Christ's likeness, and we work empowered by the Spirit. I also forgot to mention that our sanctification is complete at the moment of death, glorification, when all sin is removed. So, work hard, praying for the Spirit's enablement. Preach the gospel to yourself. Saturate yourself in the Word. 
be faithful in corporate worship, service, fellowship, and trust in the Spirit to work. Any questions? Teresa. I can't hear you. It's not the church. I mean, meeting for a Bible study is, is not the body of Christ. And uh, the church is what God has, is the, the means that God has ordained for us to use our gifts to minister to one another. I mean, that's what you see pictured in Ephesians. It's not a, a Bible study. It is the corporate gathering of the church, local assembly. So if they're doing that in, in, and, you know, excusing their absence from the corporate body, I would challenge them that they don't, they don't understand what church is, and they don't understand what we have been commanded to do. Yeah, but it, but it's not, and it certainly doesn't um, live up to what we see uh, pictured in the New Testament. In apps. Yeah. missionaries go out, they go out with this, uh, so biblical missionaries go out with a specific intent to plant a church. And the people that are planting church are elder qualified, trained and equipped. And uh, the, the elders that plant lead that local church, um, basically are establishing a local church body uh, according to, you know, what scripture uh, defines as a church or gives example of as a church. So it's not just a, a local Bible study. And, you know, there's exceptions where people can't because whatever reason, because of physical limitation or health issues, where they cannot attend. But if they are capable and, and uh, you know, not physically prohibited, we're to be in church. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Kind of off topic. Yes. So I, I can't hear you. Oh, sorry. God causes us to be born again. Regeneration bringing us from death to life is a work of the Spirit. 
We don't do that. We don't make ourselves born again. And as we are brought to life, as we're regenerated, then we're granted the gift of repentance and faith, and we exercise that. Now, all of that is happening probably not consecutively, you know, in chronological order, but that's how we see it is probably all happening uh, at the same time, basically. But, yeah, we don't bring ourselves from death to life. Regeneration is solely a work of God. And we respond because we've been brought from death to life. Okay? Yeah, we do. And we respond when we're brought to life. We can't respond when we're dead. Does, can a dead person respond to any provocation or any encouragement? I, mean, I don't know if you were here last week, but I gave the example of the dead guy that I found when I was backpacking. You know, I kicked him and tried to get him out of the trail, and he wouldn't move. He's dead. And when we're spiritually dead, it's the same, it's the same thing. We can't respond to the things of the Spirit. We can't respond to the gospel when we are spiritually dead. God first has to bring us to life in order for us to respond to the gospel. Okay? All right, All right you guys are dismissed.